Good morning, everyone. If this is your first time joining us, or maybe even just your first time in a little while, then you should know that we're in the middle of a sermon series on the book of Mark. And today we're going to be thinking together around Mark chapter 5. And if you'll bear with me, we're going to work a little bit backward and start with the second half of the chapter first. So we'll be picking up this morning around verse 21. Uh, and in verse 21, Jesus has just crossed over the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. And as soon as he gets off the boat, he's surrounded by a great crowd of people. A lot of you have been following along with our reading plan and reading through Mark sequentially, so it maybe won't come as a surprise to you that this crowd is here. In a whirlwind of only four chapters, we've seen Jesus be baptized, cast out demons, heal multitudes of people, cause a paralyzed man to walk, go head-to-head -head in debate with religious leaders, teach with authority, calm the storm. So when we come here to chapter 5, we as readers feel in ourselves the excitement of the crowds, and we can't help wanting to gather close and see what Jesus is going to do next, too. And then out of this crowd steps a man named Jairus, and the text tells us a little bit about him. We know that Jairus is a leader of the synagogue, and as such, he likely had responsibilities with caring for the synagogue building, maintaining the scrolls, organizing leaders for the Sabbath, and providing order to their worship. Synagogue leaders were known for their piety and their wisdom, and generally, on top of all of this, they were quite financially well off as well. So in other words, these were people who carried with them every kind of influence in the community around them. But Jairus has come to Jesus on this day, not in any kind of official capacity, but because he's desperate. We meet him in Mark chapter 5, verses 22 to 23, as a parent in anguish. His little daughter is dying, not in a matter of days or weeks, but in a matter of hours. She's at the very point of death. And so Jairus asks Jesus to come and lay his hands on his daughter so that she'll be made well and live. And even in his desperation here, there's a measure of faith. He expects Jesus to come, and he expects Jesus to be able to do something for him. And so Jesus interrupts his public ministry to these crowds in order to be able to attend to this urgent private matter. Jesus knows, and Jairus knows, and now we know that there's not a moment to spare, but soon we read that Jesus spares one anyway. On his way to Jairus' house, Jesus is interrupted again. And this time it's by a woman, we're told that she had suffered for 12 years with a bleeding condition, that she'd spent all that she had on doctors, she'd suffered greatly under the treatment of physicians, and that for all of this, she hadn't gotten any better, and she'd only grown worse. She interrupts Jesus, and because of her interruption, she's healed. But imagine for a moment that you're Jairus. This woman has been sick for 12 years, but your daughter is dying now. And we're told that just the moments that Jesus spends with this woman leave enough time for Jairus' daughter to die. In fact, even before Jesus had finished speaking, news comes to Jairus that his daughter was dead. Leave Jesus alone. Don't bother him anymore. It's too late. Jesus overhears this conversation, and he says, Don't be afraid. Only believe. And Jairus is desperate enough that he does, or at least he tries, we see in Jairus one of the great challenges in our Christian walk. It's easy to trust God when things are going well, when they're moving forward the way we want them to, when we ask God to move, and he does. But when things become really dire, when we feel that the action of God is delayed, or he doesn't act in the way that we had asked or the way that we had hoped, when the pandemic stretches a whole year longer than any of us had anticipated, and there isn't a clear end in sight, 
it's much easier in these moments to disbelieve. Why bother Jesus anymore? It's too late. The challenge is to still believe Jesus in the midst of difficulty or suffering or waiting or pain or loss, in the midst of a situation that doesn't seem to change. But even here, even when things are at their very worst, still the call of Jesus is don't be afraid, only believe, only trust. And so finally they do. They arrive at the house of Jairus. Mourners have already gathered at the home and Jesus steps into this new crowd of people and says something so absurd that they stop wailing and they start laughing instead. He says in verse 39, why are you making a commotion and weeping? This child isn't dead, she's sleeping. Sleep is a term that Jesus often uses to refer to death. In the Gospel of John, Jesus uses the term sleeping to, to uh, speak about Lazarus, and Lazarus has already been dead for four days. So we know, of course, that Jesus isn't really trying to tell them that the girl hasn't died, she's just taking a nap. Uh, he's saying that death, even though it's real, even though it's present, is not final. It may be the last enemy, but it doesn't get the last word. And so coming to the end of the chapter now, in verse 41, Jesus takes the girl by the hand and says to her, Talitha kumi, an Aramaic phrase which means something like, little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. And it's often these final verses of the Jairus story in which we see the authority of Jesus even over death that become our big takeaway from Mark chapter 5. We look at Jairus and we look at Jesus and we're encouraged to believe even in the midst of impossible situations because the resurrection of Jairus's daughter points us ahead to the greater resurrection of Jesus, which once and for all time secured our standing before God. We have hope because Jesus has secured our hope. And this is absolutely part of what Mark has in view here. He's writing to a group of Christians who are hanging on by a thread and he points them to the power of their resurrected savior. But there's even more to the picture than this. So let's look a little more closely at the structure of Mark chapter 5. The verses that we've just dis discussed from 21 to 43 are given to us in the form of a Markin sandwich, which is both a very silly and a very effective term to describe one of Mark's favorite literary devices. Mark is in the habit of sandwiching one story or section of teaching between two blocks of a larger story or a larger section of teaching. So if we look at these verses like a sandwich, then the Jairus story acts as the bread, and the healing of the unnamed woman acts as the filling. And in the same way that if I were to assemble a sandwich by putting two pieces of bread around some ham and cheese, I would call it a ham and cheese sandwich and not a bread sandwich. Mark's literary sandwich is defined by what's in the middle and not by what comes at the end. So we're gonna look back to the middle of Mark's sandwich, the healing of the unnamed woman to see what more the text has to tell us about who Jesus is. This woman is easy to miss, both in the narrative and in the time and place in which she lived. Let's compare her for a minute to Jairus. Jairus is named, and we don't know her name. Jairus was a person of status and importance. He commanded the respect of the people around him. She has no standing. She wasn't only plagued with a debilitating chronic illness. She was also an outcast. For 12 years, she lived in disgrace, ostracized and alone. Her bleeding condition made her unclean. She could never marry, she could never have children. She had no hope for restoration or a future. 
Technically speaking, she shouldn't even have been there that day. Her bleeding not only made her unclean, but anyone who touched her or came into contact with her was made unclean as well. She could be severely punished for her presence. She had broken the law to be there. But she had heard about Jesus. She came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I can just touch his clothes, then I will be healed. And I can't tell you what kind of belief guided her action, whether it was some form of superstition or maybe just fear that led her to sneak up from behind and touch his clothes. In other words, I don't know how well informed her faith was, but I can imagine what she might have heard about Jesus. My dad is a pastor and spent years telling stories about me from the pulpit, so I think it's only fair that I should get to tell some stories about him now. When my brothers and I were quite young, my dad was out clearing a field of trees and had brought us along to help him. Um, so I was puttering around, kind of half-heartedly collecting branches, when I heard my dad's voice call out, Sandy, move! Um, and I'll grant you that I was really small at the time, so this might not be entirely accurate, but I turned around and I saw what is in my memory, my dad holding this 50-foot fall tr tall tree, and he's holding it by the base, and he's got his hands wrapped around it, and he's keeping it from falling over right on top of me. And my eyes kind of get big, and my mouth sort of gapes, and I'm too terrified to move. I'm not even afraid that the tree is going to squish me. It just had never occurred to me that a person could do that, <laughs> that a person could just grab hold of a tree and pick it up and hold it like that. I was safe, and I was loved, and I was protected, and I was rescued, and I was terrified. Because who does that? Just picks up a tree. But now imagine something even bigger than this. Jesus' disciples are with him at the end of chapter 4, and they get into a boat with Jesus to cross the Sea of Galilee. And while Jesus is sleeping, a furious storm rises up. Waves are crashing over the sides of the boat, and they're certain that they're going to die there. So they say to Jesus, teacher, don't you care if we drown? So Jesus got up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. And the di disciples don't say, wow, thank you, Jesus. That was really helpful. That's great. The disciples were terrified. Who is this? They say, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. This Jesus is powerful and it's terrifying. And then immediately afterward, at the start of chapter 5, the now very shaken disciples step off the boat with Jesus in the region of Gerasenes, and they're met there by a man who's been tortured by an evil spirit. No one was strong enough to bind him or subdue him. He lived among the tombs where night and day he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Here is a man living in total anguish, under the affliction of an unspeakably powerful evil. And then Jesus, with the same voice that calmed the waves and the winds, casts out the evil spirit and restores the man. The people from the town see this, and they plead with Jesus to leave their region. Just get back in his boat, stay on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, because they've seen his power, and it's terrifying. The Jesus the woman has heard of in Mark chapter 5 is terrifying because in him there is power like no one has ever seen before. Who is this? The wind and the waves obey him. Who is this? The greatest powers of evil cower and flee. And so after 12 years of suffering, this woman comes to Jesus looking for power. 
But notice the way that she comes. She sneaks up to him from behind. She isn't going to bother him. She would have been happy to come to Jesus, get her miracle, and then go quietly on her way to put back together some of the pieces of her life. She touches his clothes, and immediately her bleeding stops, and she feels in her body that she's freed from her sufferings, and that she just fades quietly back into the crowd. The text tells us that Jesus knows what has happened too. He knows that power has gone out from him. But you know, he's in a hurry. He has to get to Jairus' house. And frankly, this isn't that big of an event in Jesus' life. He heals people all the time. He could have just kind of smiled to himself, checked another box off his list, and kept on going. But he doesn't. He stops the whole procession and asks a question. Who touched me? Now, I would like to suggest to you that Jesus already knows who has touched him. Like God asking Adam and Eve when they hid in the garden in Genesis 3, where are you? He already knows. He knows the answer. The question isn't for his own edification. It's for his hearers. It's for the woman. It's for us. Who touched me? This is hard for us to picture now, but think if you can back to a time before COVID-19 had changed our lives so dramatically. Picture trying to navigate your way through the crowded welcome center at River Cross, or trying to squeeze your way into your seats at a packed concert venue, or even boarding a full bus and pushing your way toward the center trying to find a place to stand. You can maybe understand then the disciples' confusion at Jesus' question. Look at all these people, they say in verse 31. How can you ask, who touched me? If you've ever been in a crowd like this, then you know that the answer to the question is everyone. Everyone touched you because there are so many people. But Jesus persists, drawing the woman out of the crowd with this question, who touched me? And Jesus keeps on looking to see who had touched him. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came forth and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. This woman had only come for a miracle, but Jesus calls a meeting. I read recently about a philosopher named Martin Buber who makes the distinction between I-it relationships and I-thou or I-you relationships. I have an I-it relationship with my computer, with my cell phone, with my books, with my craft supplies. It's a transactional, impersonal relationship but I have an I-thou relationship with my husband. I have an I-thou relationship with my parents. I have an I-thou relationship with my brothers and my friends. It's personal and it's meaningful. Sometimes we want an I-it relationship with God. He's the power source. He's the problem solver. He's the supplier. He helps me do the things that I need to get done. And then we leave it there. Because like the people in the town of Gerasenes, he's a little scary, and we want him to go away. Or like the woman who needed healing, we've come for a miracle, and now we kind of want to sneak off unnoticed. Or like Jairus, we're tempted to walk away when we don't get the answer that we're looking for. But Jesus isn't interested in an I-it relationship. He wants an I-thou relationship. He calls us to a whole personal encounter with a whole, personal, sovereign, complete creator God. And so he asks, who touched me? In the kingdom of God and in Jesus' ministry, miracles aren't just an end to themselves. Power is not the purpose. 
Miracles always and only direct us to encounter God. They lead to a personal meeting. And so following Jesus isn't just about getting our needs met. It's growing in the presence of Jesus, being known by him, knowing him, and in knowing him, becoming more like him. And so the woman who had already received power, already received her miracle, she's not permitted to leave until she has spoken with Jesus. And she comes to him trembling. She knows she shouldn't be there. She knows what Jesus can do. But Jesus meets her with compassion and not reproach and says to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Go in peace, Jesus says. And we tend to think of peace in terms of absence. It's the absence of stress, the absence of conflict, the absence of noise. And this is part of the biblical concept of peace. But real peace, real shalom, as it's called in the Old Testament, involves not just the absence of bad things, but the presence of something better. Shalom is used to speak of the state of completeness or wholeness. It's a brick wall with no cracks or missing pieces. It's a completely assembled jigsaw puzzle. It's something complex with many pieces that is in a state of wholeness, everything in its place. And crucially, we experience shalom, we experience wholeness when we are in right relationship with God. We are, when we're restored to the one who created us, when we're known by him and know him in turn, Shalom speaks about the peace with God that we gain by being in covenant relationship with him. So Jesus isn't just telling this woman to go away and be happy. He's sending her forward to live continually in the presence of God. The baffling truth of Mark chapter 5 is that this terrifying Jesus who commands the wind and the waves and drives out the unclean spirits, who's victorious over death, who can gain nothing from our presence, is not content to have a transactional relationship with you. It's not enough to just take a piece of Jesus, to come to him for our solution, and then go on our way. He wants an I-thou relationship with you, to welcome you into the peace, the shalom, the wholeness of knowing God. It's this I-thou relationship which sustains us as we journey with Jesus that lets us marvel at his power instead of running away, that transforms us entirely, and that enables us to believe that he is trustworthy, even when our situation doesn't change. So I'm going to ask you to do something that's probably going to make all of us a little bit uncomfortable. But if you get through this with me, then the rest of your week is all uphill from here. I know that all of us have things that are weighing heavily on our hearts and on our minds today, situations that we need a solution for. But I want to invite you just for a couple of minutes to be quiet with me, to come to God in prayer, not with an agenda or a plan, but just to know him and to be known by him. So if you're watching at home, there's nothing wrong with your Wi-Fi. You don't need to refresh your browser. We're just going to take a minute together and rest in the presence of God. And then after a couple of moments of quiet, I'll close us in prayer.
that my prayer today is small and it's simple. We want to know you. Each of us is carrying a different burden today and we long for answers, we long for resolution, we long for healing, we long for relief, we long for solutions, but more than any of those things, God, we just want to know you. So I thank you that you are not interested in an I-it relationship with us. You're not willing to be held off at arm's length, but you're calling us into authentic relationship with you. And I thank you that you haven't made yourself hard to know, but you've revealed yourself through your word, through your son, through your spirit, through your church. And so God, for each one today, I ask that you would meet them wherever they are with the consolation of your presence, that they would experience the wholeness the shalom of living in constant relationship with you. And God, I ask that as you invite us to experience your shalom, you would also make us agents of shalom in the world around us, beckoning others to come and just know you, just know you and be known by you. And so God, we commit this week to you. And we ask that as we journey through our homes and our work and our play, you would help us just to know you and then know you more. And God, we ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.